it's on, on Facebook Live. Maybe you're going to watch this now. Maybe you're going to watch it a little later. Maybe you're listening on, on Podbean or iTunes. Welcome to you as well. And uh, we consider you very much a part of our, our church family, even though you may not be here in the flesh in the present moment, okay? Uh, this is part two of a series we started a couple of weeks ago, The Beginner's Guide to Predicting Your Future. You say, what in the world is that all about? Well, you know, the will of God, I find, um, and where's my life going? Where am I going to be in a year? Where am I going to be in two years, three years, five years, ten years? Um, it really is a question about the will of God, at least in particular if you're a person who's trying to live Christianly. This is a big question for people. And I find uh, that there's a lot of ambiguity to it, a lot of mystery to it, that really is somewhat unnecessary because there are certain things that you can see in people's lives and you start to put the pieces of the puzzle together and you can pretty well say, well, this is the direction that a person's life is going in. And you can get to a place where you can say, well, <laughs> I knew that was going to happen or I could see that one coming. And maybe in your own life, you have the same experience. You say, well, I should have known better because I did this and I did this and I did this. And now look at the mess that I'm now in. Uh, so it isn't that complicated when you start to observe either yourself or other people over a long period of time. There's certain things that, again, you connect the dots, you put the pieces of the puzzle together, and you see you're going in a particular direction. So in, in the first part, we talked about this word repentance a little bit, uh, which is a word that that uh, we don't necessarily like to use, uh, especially in church circles today, but repentance, really powerful, really important part of the whole story of redemption that we see in the Gospels. So repentance, though, it's not some magic button, right? There's no sort of quick fix and you say, well, now my life is all brand new and, you know, God pressed the restart button in my heart and everything in the past is all gone and you know that that's not really true. You, you, you change direction when you repent, but there isn't some sort of magic button. You haven't restarted, you haven't rebooted, you haven't reset like a piece of electronics. What you have done is you've changed your direction. So where the pieces of the puzzle were going this way, now they're going a different way. And repentance is just that. That's what the word means. You're walking toward a sinful, destructive lifestyle. And you turn around and you change direction. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you've got it all together. It means, though, you have made a decision to change your direction. And when you change your direction, you change your outcome. You change your destination. It's quite simple. So in that sense, this idea of predicting your future, well, it's not really that mysterious anymore. You, you, you've changed your trajectory, you change your direction. Jesus told a story that illustrates this, the wise and the foolish builders. So you've got a, or builders, yeah, you've got a one man and he decides he's going to build the house fast, he's going to build it cheap, he's going to build it with less effort, he's going to take the easy way, and his foundation is going to be on something very common, very easy to find, uh, sand, after all. Uh, you know, it's sunny today, it'll be sunny tomorrow. I mean, well, well, I'll get it done quicker, I'll get it done cheaper, I'll get it done with less headache, less heartache, maybe I'll make even more money, maybe I'll build more houses like this. I mean, look, everything is terrific. I'll build it on sand. 
And then you've got another builder, and that builder, he does the hard work, and he goes and he finds rock. Maybe he digs for it. Maybe he gets some sand out of the way, but he goes and he builds his house on rock. And Jesus is telling the story to these people, and they know where this is going to go. They say, well, the, 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 the winds came, and the streams rose, and the, the, the rain came down, and there's, there's floodwaters, and there was terrible weather. And guess what happened to the, the house that was built on the rock? Well, the house that's built on the rock stood. And the house that's built on the sand, everybody in the audience knows where that's going. Oh, that house didn't do good. That house, you could predict that that house fell with a great crash, you see. And so Jesus is talking about, well, what, what are you building your life on? You're building on the rock or you're building on the sand? And the rock is representative of him and his words and his teaching and obeying him. This is the rock. And this is what Jesus is talking about in the wise and foolish builders. You've got, you've got something that's predictable in that you build your house on one of two foundations, and then you've got the part of life that's unpredictable. The winds are going to come. The rain's going to come. The water's going to come. You know that it's coming. You just don't know how much. You don't know when. You don't know how high it's going to go. You, you don't know those things, but you know trouble will come. I don't know if you've watched on the news, but you've seen what's happening in California? Oh, my goodness. You've got earthquake there. The, the very rock is splitting there. And they've got major, major earthquakes happening over there in, in that state in the United States right now. Uh, it's all over the, the news, and everybody's kind of panicked. Uh, you can't predict some of those things. You know they'll come. But you don't know to what intensity, to what measure. So when you're building your house, he's not talking necessarily about a physical house. He's talking about your life. He's talking about your relationships. He's talking about your, your professional life, your emotional, spiritual, physical, financial life. All of the, this is like building a house. How are you building it? Are you building it on the rock? Are you building it on sand? Because the wind, the rain, the water is going to come. Now, it's easy to say that, all right? It's easy to say, well, I'm going to build my house on the rock, Pastor. That's, that's the lesson that Jesus wants to tell. It's easy to say that. That's about your actions. That's about your choices. That's about putting pieces of the puzzle together this way instead of putting them together that way. Yeah, 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 I get that. I get that. But you and I know that it's not that simple because what happens is you have this direction that you want to take but you also have something going on on the inside. You have motivation, you have intention, you have something that's visible that everybody sees. You're taking a particular direction. That's good, that's good. But what's going on on the inside? And we talked about this again this morning with the band when we were talking about that song. Uh, what's going on really on the inside? And I say this because what, what I have observed uh, in a couple of decades of ministries, you've got this visible life that you show to people, and it's, it's kind of the front end of things. And it's the persona that you put on for people. But then you have your invisible life. Then you have your heart, your motivation, your intent, all of those things. And I find that oftentimes those two contradict so there's something going on on the inside that does not really match what's going on on the outside. 
But nobody sees the inside except you and God. Maybe your close friends or relatives or maybe your spouse or something. Maybe you think that they see it. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But that's something that's deep within you, your motivation, your heart, your intent, that invisible part of you. And when there's this contradiction over time, over sometimes a long period of time, you eventually see it. So what do I mean by this? And I'll try and try to do a little little math with you. How many of you, you got your math marks, kids in high school, or you good in math? How many of you did not like math in school? Put up your hand. How many of you, you really like math in school? Put up your hand. Whoa, okay, okay. The actuary with her hand up. Okay, that's good. So, so uh, I tried to do this in a kind of a technical way, all right? So sometimes we have what looks like a positive direction. So it looks like we're putting all the pieces all the, all the dots are going in a particular direction. It looks really good. I mean, look at this person's life. You know, they, they live in a certain way, and everything looks really, really good. I mean, it looks like they're building their house on the rock. But on the inside, the motivation, the intent, what's going on inside the person's heart is the opposite. There's a raging battle on the inside. And everything looks good to everybody else on the outside. They can fool everybody else, but they can't fool themselves and they can't fool God. And there's this, there's the motivation, the intent, the heart is all over the place. It's like the person's a shadow. They've got a shadow, a shadow direction that nobody sees, you see. And when that happens over time, as you observe the person, or maybe the person is you, there's a flip that takes place. And it almost looks like it took place overnight. You know, I don't know if you, if you keep up with, with uh, you know, the church and leadership and, you know, around the world. I do. I, I'm fascinated by it, and I like to see what's going on in other churches. I like to watch other leaders and read books and all this kind of stuff. I don't know if you've realized it, but of late, there's a lot, a lot of news about pastors who have, who have fallen into moral failure. I don't know if you've noticed this. Story after story after story for the last three, five years, even in the Southern Baptist Convention, there is an uproar right now, which is the largest uh, denomination, if you will, in the United States. It's massive. There is an uproar due to the way that some of this stuff has been handled over the last number of years. I don't know if you watch or if you've seen these things. You know, it used to be you'd see these television personalities, these evangelists, and they would fall morally. And we were all shocked. And we all look and we say, how can that be? That that person, that that example who's living their life in such a direction, how is that possible that their life could collapse overnight and that they fell into this, this moral failure or whatever it is, they stole money or it was, you know, personal relationships that all went awry or it was adultery or it was all this stuff. Like, how could that be? And it's devastating to watch that. I can tell you as a pastor, I have seen that many, many times. I have seen pastors who have fallen into those kinds of things. I've seen other people, I've seen Christians do things that, you, you know, the easy answer is to say, well, they obviously can't be Christian then. It's impossible. How could they be a Christian and how could they behave that way? It is not that simple, my friends. What's going on is you've got a positive direction there, 
but you've got negative motivation, intent, the heart. There's a shadow in there. There's a battle inside that person. Ultimately, they lose that battle because those two things cannot contradict. You cannot live that way for a long period of time. Eventually, something is going to snap. The other, the other can happen as well, where a person can be going in what appears to be uh, the, the direction that they're taking is all wrong, but their, their motivation, their intent, their heart appeared, at least for people who knew them, you know, close, maybe close relative or spouse, appeared to, they really wanted to do the right thing. They really wanted to live Christianly. They really wanted to live in a godly way, it seemed, but their life went off the rails. They, 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 they ended up making these choices. How can that be? It seemed like their heart. It seemed like their convictions were strong, and yet their life went off the rails. That's because there was a contradiction between the outside and the inside, and ultimately, the direction that you're going to take over the long period of time, not the short run, the long run. Remember, you're building a house that takes a long, long time. Ultimately, the direction that you're going to take in time is going to reveal what's really inside the heart in time. You may be able to fool people for a while. You may be able to fool yourself for a while. But after a while, something's going to give and something is going to snap and you're going to run into all oh, this crisis. This crisis was of my own creation. I am my own worst enemy. It was of my own making, or maybe it's someone close to you. It was of their own making because ultimately, over time, the direction, the actions reveal what is in the heart. Let me give you an example of this. It's very straight up example, all right? And this is from the book of Proverbs. This is the whole of uh, uh, seventh proverb, all right? This is in the right smack in the middle of your Bible. Uh, you're going to find this, this amazing text, all right? Likely written by Solomon, known as the, the wisest man who, li who ever lived on the one hand, but also one of the most foolish men who ever lived on the other. You talk about a guy who had the outside and the inside in conflict. You know, later on in his life, he realizes this, and, and uh, there are Proverbs here that are written by Solomon probably in his old age after his, you know, huge, huge problems with, with uh, hundreds of wives and concubines and all. The, what an utter mess, the wisest man on the face of the earth. Let, let, me, let me read to you what he says here in Proverbs chapter 7, talking about the outside and the inside. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Some of you with kids, you, you, you try and teach your kids. You listen to what I'm saying. You do what I'm saying. You're going to have, things are going to go well for you. Just listen to what I'm saying. Take my advice. This is what he's doing. This is what he's saying. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart on the inside, right? Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Close relationship. Call understanding your kinsman. 
they will keep you. He's probably writing, well, he is writing to young men here. They will keep you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. I'll put you on pause here. So the proverb is not trying to teach that every young man is going to fall into this type of temptation. The proverb is not trying to teach that every woman is an adulteress, all right? He's trying to give advice, and he's probably speaking from experience, if this is Solomon writing, with all of the mistakes that he made in this area, he's writing from experience, and here he's going to tell a little story to potentially these young men who will read this. At the window of my house, I look looked through the lattice, I peered through the blinds, as it were, and I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who lacked judgment. In some Bibles, it says that the, the person was a fool. So he's looking, he's observing, and he sees through his window, he sees, oh boy, there's a, there's a young man there, and they, they lack judgment, at least in, in this translation. Among the simple, simple doesn't mean a lack of intelligence. It means there's a moral, perhaps, conflict going on in the, inside the person, a youth who lacked judgment. He was going down the street near her corner. That's his first mistake. He should have stayed away from her corner. But he's going down the street, and he's going near her corner. Walking along in the direction, that's the outward, the direction of her house. You're going to find out who she is in a minute. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Can I just tell you, because we have kids in the room here, um, just parents... Do not tell your children that sin is not fun. And that's why you shouldn't sin. Okay? That does not work. Can I just tell you, sin is a lot of fun. For a time, for a period, for a temporary time, sin is fun. And don't, don't kid yourself and think that sin is not fun. Sin is fun. But it's fun for a short period of time. And then it brings great demands. And it asks for more and more and more until it consumes a person's life. But never, don't kid yourself and think that sin is not fun. It is. That's why it's so enticing. And this poor guy, this poor young guy, you know, Solomon, if Solomon is the writer, he sees it. He sees where this is going. He can predict where this is going. You talk about predicting your own future. He's watching. He's saying, this young man is, in today's terms, He's toast. He's finished. He's making foolish decisions. He's got his head up in the clouds somewhere. He cannot, it's, it's like, what are you doing? You're going, you're walking in a direction that is going to take you down. You, if you want to teach your children to avoid sin, teach them to avoid sin. You get in the vicinity of the thing and the fun of it and the temptation of it and the risk of it and the adrenaline of it, of it is too enticing. This is why, for example, Joseph in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, when he is enticed by the same type of person, Potiphar's wife, what does he do? Does he stand there and say, oh, I'm a strong, godly person. You know, it doesn't matter. She can do whatever she wants to me. What does he do? He runs for his life because he knows Sin is fun. So remember, 
it is fun, but it is fun for a short period of time. So he sees this. We sees where this is going. The twilight's coming. He's walking toward her house. He's like, oh, boy. Then out came a woman to meet him. I'll try to keep this uh, as, as clean as I can, okay? But it's in the Proverbs. Uh, uh, dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. She is loud. She is defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner, she lurks. Woo, that's a strong description. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face, she said, I have fellowship offerings at home. Well, she's religious. Not sure what religion, but I have fellowship offerings at home. And today I fulfilled my vows. Well, you know, you're, you're painting yourself to be some sort of pious person here. So I came out to meet you. You of all people. I came out to meet you, this young man. And he's, he's just... I mean, he's so daft to this. He's so naive to this. Maybe he said, well, I, you know, I just serve Yahweh, and I, I serve God and everything, and I'm just taking a walk, and I'm just taking a stroll. And Solomon is ready to say, no, you're not. You, you don't, you're not playing the tape forward. You do not see where this is going because there's, there's a heart, and there's an outside and an in, inside conflict that's going on. You're walking in a direction it's opposite of what you think your intention is. It's totally opposite. She says, oh, look, I have fellowship offerings at home. I fulfilled my, mouth, my vows. I came out to meet you. And I looked for you. And I found you. And he's thinking, oh, who, me? And he's th he thinks he's really special. And she goes further and she gets somewhat graphic. And she says, listen, I covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. That's mucho. It, she's got money. And I perfumed my bed. Everything back then, back there, you, it smelled, okay? So I perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Oh, boy, she is, she's really enticing this, this young guy. Come and let's drink of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. And he said, who, me? You chose me? Oh, I am so blessed. Maybe God has favored me. I mean, what is he thinking, this guy? And so uh, she says, well, let us enjoy ourselves. My husband is not at home. Okay, run for your life. He doesn't run for his life. He has gone on a long journey. He took all of it. He took money with him. He took his purse. He won't be home till the full moon. Presumably that's days away. And with persuasive words, she led him astray. The heart, the intention, the motivation could not withstand the temptation. Could not. And she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. And then the writer gives several images, and he says, all at once, he followed her. His direction went bad because there's something going on in the heart that could not sustain, could not, well, I serve God and all this. Well, your, your convictions of serving God apparently are not real strong. Uh, all at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. When an ox goes to the slaughter, they don't know they're going to the slaughter. They think they're taking a ride somewhere. Like a deer stepping into a noose till, uh, till an arrow pierces his liver. 
totally didn't expect the consequence. Like a bird darting into a snare. Little knowing it will cost him his life. His life. He did not see, he did not see it coming, but the writer saw it coming as he watched through his window. He saw it all happening. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart, the inside, turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. You're not, you're not the one. You're one of a thousand. Who, me? That happened to a thousand men before is what he's trying to say. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng, large amount of people. Her house is a highway to the grave. The word that's used for grave there is the word Sheol. It's the place of the dead in the Old Testament, leading down to the chambers of death. And the proverb finishes. Motivation and intention in contradiction led to this young man's destruction. And there, there has, you, you have to understand, over time, not necessarily in the immediate, but over time, the direction that you take is ultimately going to reveal the condition of your heart. So here's, here's the trick, and, and with this we'll, we'll close. Um, godly direction, I'll put it this way. I could put it many ways. Godly direction should naturally flow from godly motives and godly intention. Do you want to know what Christian growth is? It's right there. The direction that you take in life should ultimately flow naturally out of the heart, out of those convictions, out of those intentions, out of those motivations. This is the way that the New Testament uh, teaches it. Out of the heart flows the direction ultimately over time. Again, you may be able to fool people for a little while. You may be able to fool yourself for a little while. But ultimately over time, over the test of time, you will see whether or not your house is built on rock or on sand. The direction over time will reveal the motivation. So what you want is the godly intention, the godly motivation, the godly heart out of that flows a right direction. The word that the New Testament uses for this is called fruit. Fruit. So you want to see, well, <laughs> what's the fruit? Fruit takes time. takes time to grow. You don't just say, hey, grow, <laughs> right? It takes time, and you watch it grow over time, and then you see whether or not you've got good fruit, whether or not you've got bad fruit. So fruit is, is, is the term that's used here. Let me give you a couple of places where this is used, all right? So um, uh, when John the Baptist arrives on the scene, and he starts to, to preach repentance, which is, a, again, a change in direction. And he's preparing the way for Jesus. A, one, a voice of one calling in the wilderness from John 3. Prepare the way for the Lord, which is a quote out of Isaiah. And it describes who John is. It describes how he's baptizing people. An illustration of repentance. A change in direction. And then he sees the religious folks coming to him. 
he sees two groups. He sees the Pharisees, who would be like the, 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 the rabbinic crowd, very knowledgeable, very pious, very religious, uh, very holy, at least on the outward, at least they had the stage the persona looked great with the Pharisees. Everything looked great. They knew the Bible. They did everything right. They were the authority on everything religious. You get the Pharisees. And then you've got the Sadducees. They're more of the aristocracy. They controlled the temple. Uh, you could call them, um, uh, they were a bit like lawyers, okay? So you have those two groups, and these are like, you know, the very serious Jews of the day. So they're coming out to, to where John is baptizing. And what does John say to them? Oh, that's great. Let's baptize you. That's great. No, John, John, he treats them very differently, apparently, than everybody else who's coming out there to get baptized. You know what he calls them? He calls them a bunch of snakes. First century Middle East you call people a bunch of snakes, that is the worst insult you can possibly think of. So he says, you are a brood of vipers. They're coming out there maybe to even get baptized. Who knows? Or maybe they're just checking it out. Maybe they're just investigating, seeing what's going on here. And he says, this, these are the snakes in the grass, is what he's saying. The brood of vipers is here. And he says, you brood of vipers, you pack, you're a family of snakes. He says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Because he knows. He knows that the heart there is in contradiction with the stage persona. He knows. He knows who the Pharisees are. He knows who the Sadducees are. Who did Jesus have the most serious confrontations with? Was it with the sinners? Nope. It was with this group right here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He had the most, the deepest arguments, the most serious confrontations. Even Jesus uses words like this when he's addressing those people. Why? Because the outside did not match the inside. And he accused them of being hypocrites. He used this term, brood of vipers, as well. And what does John say? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit. This is the term, again, that's used um, in the New Testament. Go, uh, Matthew chapter 5, a couple of chapters, or um, not a couple of chapters, but a little bit later, uh, in the life of Jesus, this is the Sermon on the Mount. We, we quoted from it a little bit last week as well. And here's, here's uh, the way Jesus puts it. Again, speaking of, of adultery, same thing as Proverbs 7. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is in the law. It's in the law of Moses. You shall not commit adultery. But Jesus, he illustrates this and he says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he may be able to hide his intention, his motivation over a period of time. He may be able to go through all the right motions over a period of time. Everything may be looking good. The direction looks real good. Wow, look at the person faithful to their spouse and all this, and all of a sudden, whoosh, big moral failure. And Jesus would say, ah, 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 that's because in the heart, the desire was there. And the person may have battled it, battled it, battled it, and it had overcome them. It, it, it overcame them. They could not change 
what was on the inside. They kept the outside going for a while, like the Pharisees and like the Sadducees, but over time, finally, something snapped. My friends, those kinds of things do not happen instantaneously. It's a, it's a long thing that happens over a period of time where you've got the contradiction in the soul that's happening, and poof, you find yourself in a big mess. Galatians chapter 5, again, speaking about fruit. Paul addressing this church. Um, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Walk by the Spirit, he says, the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's talking about this thing that takes place on the inside and this war on the inside. He says, walk by the person of the Holy Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh wants what is contrary to the Spirit. And the spirit wants what is contrary to the flesh. There's a conflict, he says. And so you, you do not do what you want because you're, you're kind of stuck with this, uh, how do I live? You've got this battle that's going on on the inside. Then he describes the, the behavior, the acts of the flesh, the, the, the direction, if you will, of the flesh. He talks about all kinds of, wow, I mean, quite a list, quite a litany of sin, you know, sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery. These are older terms for, you know, sexual sin, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. I mean, it's quite the list. And he says, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's how serious it is, he says. But the fruit of the Spirit is Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. So what do you want? You want the heart to be godly to a point where the fruit is naturally, it's naturally just coming out of your life. Where you don't have to worry, wow, in five years, am I going to have a crash? No, you won't because your inner and your outer are not in contradiction. Your motives, your intention, your heart is not in contradiction with your actions, you see. And I have found so many Christians cannot get to that point where they've defeated the contradiction. They live through life. You know, we talk about surrender, and they live a partially surrendered life to God. They're, they're halfway there. They're a quarter of the way there. They're a third of the way there. But there's areas of their life where, man, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that's going on. And they just try and keep it going without causing too much pain and too much damage. And, you know, sometimes they make it through, and sometimes they skate through, but they don't grow they don't do what they really wanted to do for God. They don't take risks for God. They don't, they don't get to that place of full surrender because they're paralyzed by this battle where half of them is there and half of them isn't. I've seen so many Christians that live underneath uh, their potential because of this whole thing. So the question is, how do you get there? How do you get to a point where you say, okay, what is inside is actually godly. It's actually really godly. It's actually really surrendered. It's actually really 
authentically consecrated to God. Like I'm not just singing the song. It my ins, The inside of my heart is actually fully consecrated to God. And therefore, the fruit just comes out naturally. You see, I don't have to fight for it. I don't have to work for it. The, the power of the Spirit is living through me. You see, how do you get to that point? Well, we'll find out next week. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be at Trinity Pentecostal Church in LaSalle, uh, talking to them about this very subject as well, uh, and talking to you. But I will do so to you uh, through this gizmo in front of me and this camera. So we'll bring the camera over there, and uh, you'll watch it on the screen over here. So it'll be, everything is normal. You're going to have worship. You're going to have, everything's going to be the same. I just will not be here in the flesh. I'll be two-dimensional on the screen, okay? Will you tolerate that? Will you permit me to do that? You don't, you don't sound convinced. Let me tell you why I'm doing it. Because they're giving us money, okay? They're, they're, they're just saying, they're, they're raising money for our back-to-school bash. It is a church that has been faithful uh, in supporting us since before we even launched, okay? And I know their pastor very well. We worked together. We were colleagues for like six years. So, uh, and they love what we do, and they're very supportive of us. They say, you come over here, you talk to us, you preach to us, whatever you want, and tell us what to, what to raise money for, and we will, give, we will give your church money. So anytime a church offers that, I say, you tell me when, you tell me when to jump, where to jump, and how high, sir? Do you understand what I'm saying? So that's why I'm going, uh, but I'm going to talk to them about the same thing. Spiritual growth is a lost art. It is a dinosaur in the church today, a dinosaur. It's become practically extinct. So I want to, I want to try and expose what spiritual growth really is. How do I make the heart actually really, truly godly? so that the fruit actually really comes out, so I can actually sing these songs with a little bit of integrity. <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? Would you stand with me, please? We're going to close the service in prayer.